Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is strictly not intended as financial advice. Any opinions of general nature and do not take into account your personal circumstances, needs, or objectives. Securities mentioned are for illustration purposes only, and this podcast should not influence investment decisions. You should read the relevant PDS and consider speaking to a financial advisor before making investment decisions. Past performance is no indicator of future returns. Podcast guests and their clients may hold positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, we're live. Got a full house today. We've got some results coming through. Maybe kick off with some good news. What's the good news? Oh, Elon Musk's got his first uh, Neuralink brain implant. I don't think we've chatted about that one before. You've been following this one, Andrew? Uh, I saw something briefly, but I, I haven't dug into it yet. Is it uh, showing any promising early signs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it seems to be seems to be working. Hasn't caused any uh, crazy damage or something. So yeah, no one's died. Good. Okay, uh-huh. that's a win. And what else? I had one other one. Oh, just the Japanese moon lander. Yeah, coming back to life. I think Japan had made the, I can't remember, it was like the most precise moon lander ever, but Japan joins the list of countries with a with a lander on the moon, which is kind of cool. What about you guys? Have you seen any good news around? No, just bad news. <laughs> good news is always hyper local, though. That's the thing, right? Like, you mean your personal good news? No, nah, like look on the ABC and it's even like, don't let their sides fool you. Daoshan's. How do you say that? Dushans love being uh, yeah, sausage dogs. dogs. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it always has, a like, cute a puppy. Of, it's always a puppy. Yeah, and then it has a then it has a picture of like a puppy and stuff, and it's like literally like in all the world that ABC covers, and they're looking for some good news, and they're like, there is a puppy. Yeah, put it on the front page. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, we can just get straight into some. Uh, we can get straight into some company news this time because there's um, there's been a few companies reporting, a few other things going on. Where did you want to jump into first, Claude? We're talking about a couple before the show. Do you want to chat Scarly or Adasol? Yeah, yeah. I thought we could start with Nick Scarly, given that they just reported today as we are as we're recording, and it's probably like the talk of the town today because the you know the results from what I understand it came in are down t- down thirty percent in terms of profit. But just like about a million or more, a million and a half above, uh, I guess the guidance. So mm. I think that also implied that you know they'd had a, they'd had a stronger quarter than expected as well. So given the guidance was given, uh, what is it in in the November AGM? So yeah, I I don't know if Nick Scarly is the best bellwether for the overall economy. Raymond's just published an article today on on these results and basically arguing that it's a, it's quite a remarkable retailer because it really has a high performance culture in their sales employees and they have high gross profit per employee and you know essentially it's therefore a very well run retailer one of his preferred retailers i think you know you can read the article for yourself but the point is that it, look it could just be that nick scarley's special or it could be that no, maybe the consumer's not as weak as people were worried about. Mm. What a remarkable run it's had. Like in six, seven months, shares are up close to 70%. We were talking at the time of like, you know, there's undoubtedly some bargains <laughs> in the retail space because there was a lot of negativity priced in and probably not unfairly so, but it just it's a good reminder that there are exceptions that prove the rule and no, as, as I'll agree with Raymond. Got to be one of the best retailers on the ASX, right? Like there's a long history here of very, very significant shareholder wealth creation. And yeah, I haven't read the results yet, but you know, credit where it's due. It's actually, despite all the, the doom and gloom, it's not that far off a record high from, from the share price perspective. It's what, about 14 bucks? I think it dipped. 
it's been above that previously, maybe even got to 16 bucks at one stage, but you know, only in the space of a, a few months. Uh, other than that, this is this is about you know the highest the share price has been. I was just basically gonna say I, I think it's interesting because like LaVisa, it's like a leader in its category. And I think that as an investor, I like to collect businesses that I think have something special about them in terms of the quality of their business or some secret source, some competitive advantage, or something that makes them better than other similar companies. And so that's why I like to follow Nick Scarly. Is there anything you think they do better that like jumps out to you? Or is it more like looking at the record of, of growth over such a long time? I think that their position in the market probably is is right, like a little bit premium. And obviously, I think the thesis that uh, Raymond has, which I'm, I'm willing to believe, is that they have a, a pretty a strong, like a, a sales culture that really pushes their salespeople to get results. Mm. And that can be sometimes not ideal either as a salesperson or as a customer, but that's good for the business. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, they, they there's a few things about them that's different from furniture retail because they kind of make sales and then and then build the couches basically so they don't they don't have as many inventory problems as i think you might normally expect from a a furniture retailer yeah very i don't know i guess i think the reason so the market's up what is it up like 16 percent or something today on this news so just today alone and as you said 70 odd percent over the last you know six seven months on the face of it looks pretty negative you know impact net profit down 29%. But it just seems like it's probably that kind of turn in the second quarter. So September to December last year, it looks like the sales orders were not nearly as bad as people were expecting. Groups written sales orders for the period were up 1.1% on PCP. So there's this lag between sales orders and their revenue and profit. And it seems like something kind of turned, which I guess was kind of what we're seeing in, you know, like a, a bit of stuff with retail sales last year, where people had kind of taken you know, the rate rises on the chin, maybe more than people were expecting and employment or, you know, unemployment remained low, employment remained really strong. And then I guess you think with Nick Scarly, maybe they've got, maybe they skew a bit more to an older cohort, which have benefited from rate rises rather than the mortgage belt. I mean, it's a bit of both, but probably some of it is that. So, you know, skewing to those, those, there'd be some customers that are doing better than they would have been doing before with higher rates. So yeah, anyway, all that seemed to have turned the corner in the second quarter and, uh, yeah, I guess yeah. that you know all that negativity is unwinding quite quickly. You you beat me to it, Matt. I, I think we too often look at these stats, and it's very easy to sort of think of things in a very homogeneous kind of way. But you know there is there's a lot of pain at the bottom end of the economic spectrum, and those at the top, you know, like the worst case scenario is is that my portfolio might be down a little bit. Like it's 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 a vastly different experience. And those at the top who may not be having the second trip to Aspen this year or whatever, it's not, these are not, the high-end retailers don't tend to suffer as much from that kind of stuff. And I think, I think you can hold as an investor two truths in your mind at once, which is that there are, in a lot of ways, depending on whether you want to be the glass half full or, or glass half empty kind of guy, there's a, there are definitely genuinely things that you might want to worry about from a macro perspective. But yeah, those at an older age cohort, um, socioeconomic cohort, I don't think their you know, decision to buy the leather couch for the holiday home is going to be influenced too much by that kind of thing. And this is my, my point is not to try and be classist or anything like that, but I think when you're looking at a retailer, you really want to have a very clear idea as to what segment they pitch at. And by relying just on broad economic measures, you're, you're going to miss you're going to miss the story here. I don't know if anyone's seen the Mal- Mal- is it Malcolm Gladwell's chunky versus smooth pasta sauce, you know, TED talk. Yeah, r- remind me on it. I remember seeing that a few years ago. Oh, they did all, you know, the, the pasta sauce manufacturers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really bastardize this, but, it, you know, 
we're trying to figure out what the consumer really wanted. And it turned out that there is no pasta sauce that meets everyone's demand. And it was a bifurcation there. It's kind of like crunchy or smooth peanut butter. What's the best? It depends. Some people like really crunchy. Some people like really smooth. So why don't we make a really ultra chunky one and a really super smooth one? And, you know, it's not this idea that there is a product that just will appeal to everyone. And I actually see this lesson again and again as an investor, that the company that tries to be the everything to the every man, generally not a great company. The company that exploits its chosen niche and understands their customer really well and happily turns sales away from those that aren't their chosen customer, I think tend to be the far better business as a, as a general rule. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess, do you guys think it signals something more about the macro economy? Should we, a lot of people are waiting for Nick Scali as a first kind of retailer to report, or do you think it's more specific to them? I, I've got, I've got sort of just thought on that. Is that I'm wonder to the, I would want to know how much the people that shop at Nick Scali actually represent the overall economy. And yes. I probably need to just walk into a Nick Scali store to answer that question and the chances of me doing that are not super high. So so perhaps one of our beloved listeners can put me in my place and correct me. I mean, you would if you hadn't just renovated the four investment properties that you've got. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know the, the, holiday, the holiday homes, you know. I'm proudly investment property free since last year. <laughs> Took me a while to get rid of that one. Yeah, no, nah, it reminds me of this spoof Twitter account that isn't very active, but is always just managed to stuck, stick in my mind. That's called at mum and dad invest. And it's, it's ostensibly for Barry and Barry and Susie who, who are, you know, mum and dad investors of a certain retired age who, and some of their main interests are, uh, aside from, you know, obviously opposing any reform to negative gearing. <laughs> <laughs> Is or, or, or discussing the SMSF investments is is occasional <laughs> tweets like this one. Dear Mr. Nick Scarly Pty Ltd at Nick Scarly Ltd, we have had some stains on our pleather L-shaped lounge that are immovable. Can you please let us know who to contact to deal with this? <laughs> and uh, yeah, one of the like little recurring themes they have is is you know their dealings with Nick Scarly and uh, you know obviously an important retailer for them. So I just wonder how close to the mark that is because some of the other tropes that this account uses a you know probably probably <laughs> reasonably on the market so I, I don't know who who the people buying the pleather l-shaped white lounges from mr nick scarly but if it is uh wealthier mum and dad investors then probably their spending habits don't have that much to do with broader economy i suspect this is going to be a data point that people will point to to strengthen any thesis they may have for a various other ASX retailers. Like, look, look over there. It's not as bad as a C, I told you. And there may be some element of truth to that, but I, I would be very careful. Like if I was an investor in, I don't know, the reject shop or I don't know, something is just like, yeah, maybe, but these are these are extraordinarily different companies. So I always hate these sector classifications or something gets called technology or this gets called retail. I mean, there are companies within these segments that could not be more different from one another. And you've got to be careful to sort of say, well, Bentley sales are really good. So, you know, the next Toyota Hilux is going to be brilliant, right? Like it just they're, they're apples with oranges kind of comparison. The difference as well is though is Nick Scarly is like on a lower multiple of earnings, whereas something like the Visa, which is definitely a high quality retailer, is always on a high higher multiple of earnings like somebody had told me oh you know you got to look at la visa you know un- at under 19 dollars 
And I just got up the chart there and sure enough, the thing dipped below $19 towards the end of last year and it's shot right back up. And so, yeah, it's it's just interesting. It's like, for me, these are like the leaders in, in, in retail, maybe JB Hi-Fi. So yeah, shout out to JB. Maybe the takeaway for this one, maybe the best analog is actually JB Hi-Fi because that, and look, that's shot up recently as well. That's up like 20% in the last couple of months as well. But yeah, maybe that take, that's the best analog, right? Because it's sort of not too high multiple, pretty high quality retail, pretty big. Maybe it probably catches a, a broader cross section of society though. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, cool. What else is what else is catching your eyes result wise or or anything else? Well, a fair or maybe we'll do some results first because I was like first I was just looking through you know just generally as as you mentioned last week Matt you know we've had the four C's come out so thought we might chuck up a few for discussion little little small caps micro caps no one else really talks about and they're obviously most of them are not that impressive so then I thought I'd. I'd chuck in a company that I do actually think is interesting as well. So the first one I was going to like cruise through is Pure Profile. Now, this is one that I'm pretty sure they've presented on Strawman. I honestly remember looking this back 10 years ago. It was slightly different story, but still the core business was the same kind of business, basically. What they essentially do is like you know, somebody pays them to do market research about their product or what product they should launch or whatever it is. The way that they charge for this has sort of changed over the years. And I guess they're like trying to more make their business a little bit more recurring in nature than it previously was. I'm not really sure how well that works. They put a quarterly update out, not a cash flow that I saw, just something about revenue. And of course, they, and this is a company that's very much like a bit to excluding significant items. And they do have significant, significant items. They even in their Q2 FY 2024 highlights, which I thought was very interesting, they had a little chart that showed a bit to excluding significant items. So previously, that had excluded non cash share awards that were part of remuneration. And then they've even said, add back cash-based short-term incentive for FY 2024. So this time they, they paid actual cash, not shares, right? And then they've even add, like taken that, added that back. So excluded that as well to give a like-for-like like a bit da, which shows very, very mild growth. But of course, I would say like none of this is actually real profit. And it is very, very much, I definitely don't think that anyone has data on their side when they say, oh, well, this is going to be a very profitable company because it has many years worth of operating on the ASX and has consistently struggled. And it has on a, you know, if I just bring up Comsec, the net profit after abnormals in the last 10 years, I see one year where they made a profit. Um, so whilst I do think that it's possible that this company has a better result or gets an actual profit one year or even two years, I think that the one thing we can really take away is that it's going to be quite changeable. It's not really recurring revenue in business. Like there's going to be differing demand from year to year based on a whole number of factors. And, you know, certainly the, you know, I guess certainly I don't take that much confidence from the fact that they also had the CEO and CFO, I think it was, sold shares recently. Now, I hasten to add the share sales of to fund personal tax liabilities resulting from share-based remuneration payments relating to the long-term and short-term incentive programs over the last three years. But after that, the CEO only owns 3% of the company and it's not a super large company. So it doesn't exactly fill me with confidence. I do think that 
people, I just, the thing that I would add is you got to be aware with this company is it can have a couple of years of better results. It's possible for that to happen. But I just think you need to look at the overall business and be like, why do you think that after 10 years or whatever, what, why, what would make anyone feel sure that this is actually going to be a consistently profitable company? Yeah, it strikes me as one that's naturally going to be hypercyclical, which is not a, necessarily a problem, but bear in mind. I've always just, my issue is I'm just not very bright and I, I'm not familiar with the industry, the value prop when you cut away a lot of the hyperbole in the words in bringing insight and vision to the world through data analytics and what does that mean? I don't know. And, and, and there'll be people screaming at their phone right now going, it's not that, not that hard, dumbass. But for me, it's always going to keep me at bay. I don't think anyone who's held uh, Pew Profile shares for very long is in a position to call anyone else a dumbass. <laughs> I, I see your pure profile <laughs> and I raise you many, many, yeah. many micro cap dogs. Don't you worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got a few of those myself, but uh, nobody's calling anyone a dumbass. Is my point. No. Um, these these things happen in macros. It just it just does, and I guess I as I have matured, if I can use that word with a straight face, as an investor, I just I've really grown to to favor simplicity, and it's a whole Buffett thing. You know, there's no extra points for degree of difficulty with this stuff, and yeah, it's so outside of my circle of competence. It's it's interesting. I, I know someone on Strawman made the note recently that they've cut away some of the dead wood. They've optimize it there's you know a reasonable position here they, they could do extremely well from here but it's i don't know how to handicap that do you, do you guys have a solution for me yeah i mean i guess the advertising world in the small like, there's a few different companies that play in like programmatic online advertising small cap businesses and it's just very very hard it's just that you're up against such huge scale and the the whole kind of market is very opaque as in it's intentionally a black box because they're just a lot of the businesses really rely on some arbitrage there they're arbitraging something. I mean, all of online advertising is arbitraging some attention for something else. And so you can have these edges that then disappear. You can have like favorable circumstances. I think Pure Fit Profile was benefiting a bit, or at least investor sentiment from get Apple's anti-tracking laws that came in a couple of years ago. And there's kind of maybe we need first party data like what Pure Profile has. But yeah, it just shifts so fast. And it's really hard to have an enduring advantage. I've looked at maybe five or six of these things. And yeah, I don't think I've found anything ever that has an enduring advantage. You're just always yeah. getting stomped by giants. But the thing is, I think the right prism to look at this through in any of event is more like an IT consulting company, not like a software company. I think that's the key. You know, that yes, they do have this kind of asset, which is, I guess, this network of people they can ask about things. But a lot of their business is research service, reporting and analytics and that kind of thing. And, you know, that to me is a, a huge amount of that is just basically there's some sort of expert there that's looking at the data and, and maybe putting it through whatever uh, framework they have and trying to give you takeaways. And to me, that should be viewed as, you know, it's essentially you've got a skilled person who's being rented out in a way. And that kind of business model is far more consistent with their actual results. Like it's their results are not that consistent with some kind of, you know, strong asset that they're just making money off. Like I'll read you, you know, their revenues in the last 10 years. I'm just, I'm going to just say the, the whole number, not the point, whatever, but 9, 27, 52, 52, 26. I think they've invested something 24, 30, 42, 43. So you can see it kind of can move around a bit. And in the last year was only like pretty much flat. So yeah, like I just- Well, in that in that same time frame, you've got to lift the shares outstanding from 88 million to 1,133 <laughs> exactly. million. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So but I, it, I can only assume that the next step will be a gain to raise capital because- you know, if you're going to lose money endlessly, then you're going to need to raise capital at some point. 
And, you know, they, they should be still fine for a while, I guess. Look, they have in the last balance sheet date, 4.7 million cash and 3 million in borrowings. Now, borrowings is generally something that would lead me to avoid a stock when it's this small and not profitable, that is. Obviously, I don't mind if it's a profitable, stable business. But, you know, the balance sheet hardly sings heaps of strength. And on top of that, the, you know, the, that, that debt they do have, interest is fixed and payable at 8.5% per annum and payable quarterly in the last day of the quarter. So why are you paying, you know, yes, they do have cash, but why are you paying interest if you don't need that debt? So overall, I would just say, yeah, it's the kind of business that I'd like look to buy on a, a low multiple of profits, essentially. So it's never really made sense to my to me how it manages to keep on raising capital. But I have no doubt um, that you know there will be more capital be raised because it seems to be that all you really need is some revenue and you can raise capital on the ASX. I mean, I don't I don't want to be unfair because I mean everything's a challenge until it's not. You you throw a lot of stuff at the wall as an entrepreneur. Something sticks, something doesn't. You know, it's just it's normal. So it's very easy to sort of sit from afar and and. You know, throw shade. But this is a company with a market cap of twenty nine million. And you look at that same balance sheet, board and you know they've they've got sixty one almost million in accumulated losses. That is that is a lot of money that has been put into this entity to that present. had like flat revenue. It had flat revenue as well. It's not like there's like some yeah. rocket going off. <laughs> no, there's not. A, there's not a so you so you over the over the years, shareholders, investors have put in, well, shareholders have put in, yeah, over sixty million dollars. For a company whose net assets now are less than four and a half million dollars and is losing money still. Now, again, that's that it is a little bit unfair. I mean, it is, it is, you could point to some hyper successful companies that sort of went through these challenging phases and finally nailed it and sought out the other side. But it is perhaps a pointer towards the difficulties <laughs> of, of operating in this industry. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, so moving on, I thought uh, I'd bring to your table to hear you guys' thoughts on another fairly small company, actually, $60 million market cap, so perhaps double the size-ish, that I own shares in, by way of disclosure, is called Adacel. And now I'm sure like long-term readers and stuff will be familiar with this stock uh, because it has had its day in the sun a few years ago now, um, from which it, it fell pretty hard. At a higher level, the story is that a few years ago now, I forget the actual year, it might have been 2018, they lost a big contract with the FAA. What these guys do is they uh, provide some air traffic control software, but also tower, air traffic control tower simulation systems. And what they announced in October last year was that they were awarded the new FAA contract for the tower simulation system and support and technical refresh. Now, I don't know what the exact margins on this business will be, because the reality is that basically the, the, when they sell the systems, it's lower margin than the, 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 the sort of services and support kind of side of things. So yeah, essentially, <laughs> you don't know the exact result that it had will have on profit, but it is USD 59 million over five years. So that's more than 10 million USD per year on average that's going to be added. And I think it is fair to say that this is meaningful in the context of um, Adacel's overall revenue because consolidated revenues in FY 2023 were... 27 million. So even just doing back of the napkin kind of calculations, you can see it's like a 30, it's potentially like a 30% increase in the business. So of course, the thesis is just that um, this company will uh, enjoy some operating leverage in the next few years as this big new contract that they've won back flows through. As it becomes more profitable, it, it will look less bad basically and at the moment it has had a couple of unprofitable years in the past when it had this contract before it was reasonably profitable and so i don't think that this is some sort of fantastic 
buy and hold long-term story, grow to the sky kind of thing. I just think that it might be too cheap in light of the fact that this contract hasn't flowed through yet. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I've not looked at it closely, but I mean, just to give some contrast with pure profile, uh, you've seen the share count flavor. In fact, you've seen the share count diminish over the last 10 years or so, which is like, okay, that's interesting. So they've they've been entirely self-funded. I don't know if, you, if there's any debt there, Claude, knowing, knowing you, probably not. No, yeah, no. Uh, they're, look, they're clear. It's not like there's any, I don't think there's any real chance that they go bankrupt. The question is though, are they that good a business or are they just a business that, you know, I? it's just in, the, the high level thing I told you, like just encapsulates the, my feelings about them. It's like they lost a contract, they won back a contract. Mm. That's obviously not something that the highest quality business in the world does. In terms of debt, not, if, you, if you don't include lease liabilities, then there's no debt, but their balance sheet is pretty skinny as well. So they, mm-hmm. they have like a potential bank overdraft and, and that kind of thing as well. So I wouldn't say they're massively strong when it comes to the balance sheet. But again, like ultimately what the thesis is, is that things are about to get better for them because of this contract. Now, I hasten to add, I don't think that that's going to come through in these current results because the contract only begins on the 1st of December, 2023. So the FY. So the results that come out in February won't really have much of an impact from that at all. But according to their guidance, they should be returning to profitability anyway, but typically, of course, with a stronger second half. So um, that does make sense in terms of them having the full half from this new contract in the next half. But at the same time, you've got to take that guidance with a, a massive grain of salt as they have missed guidance on previous occasions. Yeah, I think their thesis makes sense. I'd owned this one many years ago. I think bought it by an around these levels and it went all the way up to $3 and eventually came back down. And I think the difference at the time was expecting it to become a higher quality business as it kind of won these new contracts, but the business itself just wasn't at the time, at least that high quality. And I guess you'd say probably probably still isn't like just a lot of the things that we like to look for in a software company is probably a good lesson in technical debt that it had and just hadn't really productized to have one platform like a SaaS company. It was kind of moving away from being spaghetti code, not even modularized, let alone kind of individual products as more bespoke software for each, each company. So yeah, I guess that's the danger. That's a kind of a highlights a danger with software companies that have been around a long time is how easily they can have technical debt or things that you don't that you'd assume a software company wouldn't have if you're used to looking at a lot of recent startup recently founded businesses but at the flip side you know that's what you need to compete in some domains is having that long legacy so you can kind of have these businesses that exist for a very long time without having a lot of attributes that you like so yeah something I yeah, but i do mind. agree fully with that like it's hardly perfect like i mean obviously you get the real upside when something transitions from not so good quality to good quality but i actually look i mean the only sign that that might be happening is they won back this contract but i wouldn't have high hopes of that given that they haven't invested that much into software development that I'm aware of. So yeah, I don't, I think, yeah, I don't, I think that's all fair. But yeah, nonetheless, probably a testament to the the way that software can hang around for a long time. Yep. That's a great point as well. What about you, Andrew? What's been on your radar? Uh, Actually, just before jumped on this pod, I had a chat with Jerry Sackis from Playside. We did an interview with Strawman. Playside, for those that don't know, are a games development studio. Uh, they make computer games and they've got a pretty interesting business model. So they, they have this work for hire segment. So big studios will give them some work to help provide them with a little bit of flex. And that's nice. It's nice, sort of pretty reliable kind of revenue, but they're also doing their own original IP and that's the moonshot kind of stuff. And so I'll back up a little bit here. So Jerry's a, I really like him. I mean, there's, 
I, I came away from the call and I think, God, I did it again. I was a gushing fanboy. Like it's not, this is not a hardball interview. And, and I, I am cognizant of that. So apologies to any members where, where I might've been a bit too gushing, but like, so he worked as a games developer, uh, project lead at EA development studios down in Melbourne in 20, well, for a while, for three or four years, up until 2011, they closed the studio down. And so him and some friends got together and started working on some mobile games started winning a bit of work. Business grew really well. They listed about three years ago. I want to say their first year worth of revenue was around 10 million. And uh, they're on track to do 60 to 65 million this year. And that's gone up pretty consistently. I think it was 40 million last year. So their revenue is going really, really strongly. But they've actually now cash flow positive. They've got an operate like an EBITDA margin of around 20%. Present was where they're, they're likely to end up for FY24. And they're sitting on almost 40 million in cash. And there's still a big, strong pipeline of work that's there. So this is, this is a good setup in the sense that this is not a business that's desperate to raise capital and is sort of like lurching from one quarter to the next. This is pretty profitable. Jerry has obviously been there from the get-go. He's the founder. He's a major shareholder. But also the initial team that he brought from EA are all largely there as well. And I think for me, what's attractive is that you, you've got to you've got to understand the nature of this industry. It is massive, bigger than Hollywood, right? Like it's just it is so it is a it is a global market. It's very competitive. But what I think a lot of investors miss, and this is the point that I, I kind of hammered in the call, is that when you get a bit of IP that works, the, the tail on that is so long. Jerry himself gave the example of Angry Birds, which was one of the very first games that sort of came out on the iPhone with the touchscreen back in the day. New, I believe it was a small Kiwi development studio, you know, and they, they've now got movies. Angry Birds on- wasn't Kiwi. Angry Birds was like um, Swedish or something. Who am I? Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Fruit Ninja. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> you would have sure claimed it otherwise. Yeah. I would have claimed when it. When I say sure. I have no idea what Fruit Ninja is. What? <laughs> nah. Okay. Never heard of it. Oh, really? I'm surprised. Yeah. It's fun for like five minutes. Anyway, but that that IP when it hits, and Jerry's the first to sort of point out that a lot of them won't. It's a bit like VC investing. You know, you sort of again you, know, you throw a lot of stuff there, and then something hits or it doesn't. So they they made the move into PC titles not too long ago. Age of Darkness was their first sort of real crack at that. And it's done really well. If anyone is a gamer, jump onto Steam, and look at the reviews. They're, they're really good. So they've got form. They've signed a deal recently with Warner Brothers and other very big studios. They absolutely shot it out of the park with the Dumb Ways to Die franchise. They bought that. And again, there's a lot of optionality around that. We could talk about sort of the, the NFT mint that they just <laughs> timed to perfection. Um, let's not get into an NFT discussion. I think there are waste of time but but they they read they read the room very effectively and they raised a lot of money on the back of that but the point is here that i think is that you've got a business with a pretty good base of in an well it's in an industry with a very strong tailwind it's likely to grow is growing very strongly with a very good base of work that is got a bit of form on their own ip development and is acquiring ip as well and has the ability to generate um uh a lot of very good revenue over a very long period of time if any of those manage to get any particular traction. And it's very clear from talking to him that he's extraordinarily engaged. 
a lot of CEOs talk about culture and whatnot, and it's sort of one of those wishy-washy things you think, yeah, whatever. But it's kind of like, I kind of believe it when Jerry talks about it. He's, he's clearly passionate about it. They have managed this hyper growth and done it in a financially responsible way towards their shareholders, I think, uh, I think is, is on the level. So yeah. <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts on it? Oh, I own, I own a bit of shares. I own some small shares. Yeah, I've held, we've held that in the fund since before IPO. Yeah, I think it had some really strong positive announcements with the recent quarterlies and the the recent signing under the publishing division. Yeah, I mean it's got a fair bit of it's got a fair bit of growth to go, like to to justify the current you know market cap and valuation yeah. and stuff. But but yeah, doing doing a lot of the right things. So yeah, I think uh, it's put that one in the positive updates for this quarterly for sure. Do you know one of the things that really resonated for me too was that he I, – I, I get the sense he's a guy who likes to push back on the brokers and the analysts who are pretty hyper-obsessed with, you know, short-term, quarter-on-quarter kind of thing. I, he, they've, they've done a lot to foster – I think the support they have from the from the fundies who hold it, they've done a lot of work there who who they've got the right kind of investors on that front. They're there for a long time, not necessarily just a short and good time. And he's – he is, seems to be mapping things out over many, many years. Uh, they're easily one of the biggest game development studios in the country. And again, this started started in 2011, like with a few few people in a garage, sort of proverbially. And and there's there is something nice to see a passionate founder, very culture oriented who believes in the games and it's games first. And as you can see from his LinkedIn profile, he's sort of out there playing different games and writing reviews with nothing to do with what Playside is sort of doing. So he lives and breathes this stuff and his enthusiasm is very catching. But yeah, I mean, there's 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 quite a bit of expectation in the price. Yeah, that, that's what scared me out of it. I actually used to own shares in it and to my detriment sold. I think it's done okay since then or, or even well. So I definitely didn't, um, I wasn't smart about it. But at the same time, yeah, that's what I, the only thing I've struggled with on it is, you know, the valuation. And I think actually in the most recent one, uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that they had good news with regards to their own IP revenues. And, you know, that is ultimately where I see, you know, that's a big increase that they had um, versus the prior corresponding period anyway. So overall, yeah, like that to me is a good sign. And and that is this thing that I'm looking for to improve the quality of the overall business. Uh, I think probably where I disagree with other people in the market is I think really the real thing that you're looking to invest in is the original IP revenue. That's where you get some sort of out, like where you could really justify a high multiple. The work for hire stuff, like that is, I think should be seen through the prism of, you know, you'd only value that revenue at like 15 times earnings or 20 times earnings or look, if, if you thought it was growing really fast, 25 times earnings. So that's kind of where I've not gone along for the ride, but that doesn't mean I'm right. And also that it is good to see that IP revenue um, going up. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Some other good news was uh, Janison, which we talked about before, it struggles. So they've just won a major new contract. Uh, yeah, Claude, do you have the details in front of you? I think it was New South Wales Education, kind of like a screening exam for um, to see kind of high potential kids, if that's right. Yeah, so the announcement was that there is the agreement is expected to generate revenue of up to $45 million over the initial five-year term provided all stages are approved with an option for the department to extend for a further five-year term. And essentially, Janison expects work to commence on a new platform 
and services in early 2024 with key deliverables including the digitization of test administration procedures, the development of on-demand practice test environment, the implementation, configuration, and piloting of delivery program. Janison expects pilots of the new program to be concluded in 2024. A full rollout of the digital assessment platform will be completed in 2025. So to me, this says this is um, another contract that is super boutique in nature. It's not like they've just like, you know, say, oh yeah, here's your login to our software platform and off we go. Uh, far from it uh, to have one year of, of like it's going to take us a year to get to the end of pilot stage definitely shows that if you're looking for pretend like this looks like Adacel is the same kind of thing right basically and I'm talking about you know Adacel has a market cap of 60 million and has been unprofitable for a couple of years after the last 10 Janison has yet to make a profit and has a similar actually it has a it had a similar market cap and now it has a, a much like a $90 million market cap. So unpacking it a bit, you know, I thought the result this morning was extreme. So for starters, obviously 45 million over five years is around 9 million per year on average. And the FY 2023 revenue was 41 million. So the increase is about 22%. I think that's a good increase, but I also would be thinking of this revenue more as sort of project style revenue. I'm not sure what the profit margins would be, but again, it's not going to be some situation where, you know, you just give someone a login and it's basically all the incremental revenues falling to um, to the bottom line from the, the description. It, it sounds like it's definitely not that. So a positive, but is it plus 50% positive? I'm, I'm less sure about that. That's for sure. So yeah, ultimately, I think that, you know, it's, I'm very happy for shareholders. I think it was you know, it was it was really depressed there, the share price for a bit. So seeing it pop it up, pop up now, um, I think that the share price is is probably actually with a fifty percent rise today. I think it might have gone from so like about ninety million market cap. I think. It makes a big difference. Like to me, I could definitely see more the case for why you'd be long this at sixty million than ninety million. Put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I have a very low view of the Department of Education in New South Wales. <laughs> But this is this is not necessarily a bad thing for against Jenison, right? I mean, you want a counterparty that is perhaps you have an edge over. So I don't know. Yeah, so I think I think I guess why was the share I mean it had been pretty beaten up in terms of people's sentiment towards it. I mean, keep in mind this was a stock that was worth vastly more, I guess, whatever it be, well over a dollar, it's you know back up to forty cents. So I guess maybe it's just like two things. One <clears throat> is a direct revenue component. I don't think that in itself necessarily like you know, validates that much of a market cap move because, as you said, you know, it, it was also a competitive tender process, right? So, like, I've seen some broken notes are like, oh, that's a great sign because it means that they're winning in competitive tenders. And the other side is like, well, is it a great sign because then they have to compete in the tender and probably, you know, maybe they're not making as much margin on it. I'd much rather my companies not be having competitive tenders to win their contracts. So, we don't know what the margins are. We don't know how much of that is like service and integration work versus like an ongoing SaaS more more like SaaS revenue when it's never quite SaaS Janison. Well some some of their work is SaaS, but a lot of their work isn't. A lot of the work still has some more some more kind of higher cost real world requirements. So yeah, but I guess the the signal that it sends, things maybe turning around, sentiments really beaten up. I don't think this is a thing where there's probably like huge amounts of short interest. I'm saying that off the top of my head without checking, but I do think it's a thing where it's just been really beaten up and not had any good news for a while. And but there were still a lot of brokers who were liking it and covering it and hadn't really like it had happened so fast the fall. I think this has probably been seen as like good news. Hey, we were right to stick in this one. So yeah, I'd be I'd want to see a few more 
wins like that to see that something had changed in the company's ability to grow quickly at high margins. I think that was probably what I'd, I'd owned this one before, as I think I talked about, and what I what I got wrong at least. Thankfully, sold I think higher than the price it's trading today. But I, I I'd basically expected it to transition to be more of more like a traditional SaaS company, and it had still been stuck with a lot of the challenges that you have selling into education and not having like a one product for every customer. Though, all those challenges. That's what you want to see change over the next few years if you're bullish, Jenison. I'm so concerned about my own lack of success investing in companies that have government as their main customer like there's yeah i've had more misses than successes in that and you know it even makes me paranoid for my one holding that does have a fair bit of their customers being uh governments is that alcidian uh, oh no sorry that's the, that's the other, my one good one i meant yeah the alcidian which i own is the bad one which i'm like oh god what have i done like you know essentially you know the the, the long story short is that they they were supposed to sell contracts to the nhs but the nhs you know didn't follow its own timeline for procurement which i i still hold that but it's been very very it's not their fault i mean you've got to be careful not to divulge into a different topic but there is the nhs is a basket case right there are other like much more like successful companies that do sell into government i'll use an example and education by the way i'll use an example that i i don't personally own but that I think is a good example, which is Technology One. Like, why is it that Technology One has had so much success in education, in government, whereas these other companies just absolutely can't make it work? And Technology has been te- Technology One has been such a long-term success story in selling into education and, and government as huge sectors. So I think you know there's a real there's some real value add for someone out there who can crack that case who can figure out look how do I pick the companies that are going to be really good at selling into these kind of difficult industries or these difficult sectors I should say it's a great question my my thoughts are that I think government is a very difficult counterparty when you're early like getting those first deals across the line is just oh so painful if you've ever had to deal with any large bureaucracy. I mean, you you wouldn't put your worst enemy through it. The flip side of that, though, is that once you're in, you're in, right? The, the DOE is not changing providers anytime soon. And even if they, for whatever reason, decide that they want to, you know, like 400 meetings and, you know, a thousand years later, they might finally get around to it. So the the inertia in these organizations is profound. And that, that, that's a negative at, at first, but it's a positive on the other side. Another example is uh, Eight Common, right? So they've spoken to Andrew Bond, I think, is the CEO there and makes the exact same point, like really hard. But then the other thing is, is that there's nothing quite like the, what's the term for it? It's sort of like a, it's a name and it's just escaped me. But when, this is the answer to techno- your question on technology one, where, why is it that they've been successful? Because they can point to a lot of examples where they have successfully integrated. So the bureaucrat that's having to make the capital allocation decision is really mainly concerned with covering their bum, right? It's not their money. They're still going to get paid at the end. And what do you have here? It's like, am I going to go with something that's unknown and untested? Or am I going to go something which like umpteen other departments have integrated and have had success with? And they're Australian. So there's a political dimension to all of this as well. So I think when when you can get your foot in the door, when you can sort of lower the risk of choice for the decision maker from a bum covering exercise, there's something to be said there. I think I think there's a real real advantage to be had, but it but it is a hard chasm to cross. Do you think it's just a matter? Should we should you just wait until they're bigger? Wait until they're like 500 million market cap, rather than being the small caps that are struggling. Not market caps, obviously a proxy for the business size, but you get what I'm I saying. would be more comfortable on that. Yes, I, I mean I, I 
Yeah. I mean, what do I actually, that's a harder one. I, I'm actually very bullish as a category on online education. I mean, that is, that is a sector that is just so ripe for disruption. <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah, but it's. Yeah, but yeah, you can't buy open AI. <laughs> like right. maybe that's the disruption, right? Like right. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying. It's like all the small, the, just how, how hard it is for small caps with those big customers i think that's it I'm, man we've, we've talked about on the pod before my own personal tutor who's like einstein level physics or hey we haven't actually chat talked about i don't think we talked about the the voice version of chat gbt that much did we no uh we haven't because i didn't even know about it okay so i started using it it'd been it came out a little while ago have you seen the movie her with scarlett johansson great right? movie you see, have you seen it, Claude? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So the voice assistant is extremely good, and they've got one that clearly sounds like Scarlett Johansson. Just by the way, like <laughs> there's someone there. I feel like they're infringing on her rights. Anything else you guys wanted to talk about? Yeah, I, yes, I do have something though. I wanted to say my thing. I was great grateful for, which is the smell of my daughter, my baby daughter's head. Like I think that. <laughs> You know, the endorphins or whatever come out the top of her head. I, they really, like, hit some sort of level. Very calming for me. Smells better um, than the other end, right? <laughs> yeah. <definitely. laughs> and also, I'm psyched to hear what you're grateful for, Andrew. Me? Yeah. Yeah, you've uh, had two weeks now to think of something that's actually oh positive. Oh, gosh. Uh, you go first, Matt. i got to think. About, how about the awesome house you bought? Are you grateful for that? Oh, official. <laughs> well, it's not official. Oh, it's not oh, official. So oh, when yes. when it's when it's done, can I can you guys like at the end of an episode so people can switch off? Give me ten minutes just to rant <laughs> on on this experience because yeah, I'll just sure. I'll, I'll say the TLDR is that anyone out there who's going through this process? No, no, don't say time, anything now. It's not done yet. It's not okay, done yet. Okay. Let's just no. keep my. It's We're almost done it for another episode. Some other episode, yeah. I'll say what I'm grateful for. Then Andrew will go into a rant about whatever. And for the for the people that enjoy Andrew's rant, which is probably like, <laughs> I, I think there's I think there's a few people that do and Andrew. I think that, you know, well, yeah. there's, there's a bit of Schadenfreude maybe, but the the all I will say I will say, come <laughs> no, the zombie no. apocalypse. I'm grateful. Got, say what you're grateful. I, I'm for. grateful for the fact that when the zombies come, I've got a great place to defend against the zombies. So you guys are welcome to come come join me in the bunker. I'll take it. We're going to get you all the way to gratitude by the end of the year. But I'll take that. that's a step in the right. <laughs> Nice. All right. Should we wrap it there? Wait, what about Matt? Yeah, oh, Matt, thousands of things. Too. Yeah. Health, pick one. although I'm sick. You don't, you don't seem that healthy, Sunshine. man. Look, I'm just looking at you right now and you don't Yeah, but that. you can he's be got, immensely sicker, health. man. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's a good thing to be grateful for. That'll that'll tell your little cells that they're healthy and, and that make you feel better. Damn you guys and your bloody optimism. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> just, I like that one. The ability to heal like that. All right, yeah, um, yeah, let's wrap it there, gents. Hit us up on Twitter at Baby Giants Pod. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks.